1: Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely. The ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk To Anyone, the podcast where we open the bonnet on our communication engine. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Selinski. It's good to be face-to-face again, Tom, because last week we were recording remotely from London and Kent. Yes. This week I just wanted to talk about the things we don't talk about in polite company. Okay, so we're going to be trawling over where we learned our manners (laughs) and whether they're still applicable. Somebody once said, or I once came across, the rule that when you're in polite company, you don't talk about politics, religion, or money. Um, has that ever been part of your set of rules?
2: Yes, I've, I've definitely heard that.
1: It's not uh, it's not bad
2: advice, as these things go. Uh, money, obviously, is vulgar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're English, so we're not going to talk about that. Politics and religion are literally things that people have fought and died over. Yeah. And so, yeah, you don't want to be... I mean, in in my more shall I say, pugnacious youth. Yes. I've certainly depth-charged the odd dinner party with my uh, inflexible views about things like alternative medicine,
1: for Uh, example. Well, I I mean, it's not not that long ago. Well, I remember that. But certainly uh, having a strong opinion about something feels like, okay, I need to exercise this and I can't just let it go when, when it starts to sneak into more kind of casual and relaxed circumstances. Um, and you also, you're describing a kind of a sort of a stage of your life, which as you, do you think you've you've now consigned that to history? I am um, well, never say never, mm.
2: but I think I am uh, an older, wiser, more diplomatic campaigner
1: yes. than I used to be. I think there's a sense of um, uh, have I the skill to disagree in a way which allows us all to get out of here alive? And of course, that's dependent on your opponent. Does it, uh, half of it, at least, is yeah. out of
2: your control. You can be the perfect diplomat, yeah. but be up against somebody who is so spoiling for a fight yeah. that there is nothing you can say short of 100% and
1: total endorsement of their point of view mm. that will not cause them to fly into a rage. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was like, I suppose, when we were sort of sitting around the dinner table when I was a kid, I mean, the fact is we were all, we really we were, we were exploring the territory on these issues, which was laid down by... Our parents and so we were all <laughs> it was a kind of shared tribal attitude. So we all felt, I suppose, safe to. Well, no. So basically, my politically um, and religiously. Okay, I'm going to talk. I'm to talk about all three. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Um, so my uh, my parents were when I was growing up were Labour Party activists. Um, and in fact, I, I think I might have briefly joined the Labour Party, when I, but only when I was sort of a young Labour Party person, so 16 to 18. I don't think I've been a paid-up member of any political – well, I certainly not been a member of any other political party in my adult life. So that was very much kind of the sort of politics we talk about. There was no real dissent because there were people who had opinions and agreed with each other and their children who didn't really have access <laughs> to alternative points of view. And our house was never full, really, I think, of people – not that I remember, of uh, of a very, very different sort of political stripe. Or if they were, they kept their um, opinions to themselves, possibly because there was a big yellow Labour Party poster on the front window.
2: It's worth saying though, that whereas there are some children like, I think, you and me, who do essentially swallow their parents' political affiliations wholesale, there are also others, uh, the phenomenon of the Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, brought up by a couple of Californian hippies uh, who turned out to be this arch-capitalist
1: Reaganite. Oh, and t- entirely. I mean, And I've come across some people who think you can make quite interesting psychological judgments on the basis of whether they vote for or against their parents' party. Um, and in that, that it's almost like we, we're always engaging with and reacting with uh, our inheritance on, on political matters. But um, if you are brought up in an environment where there is only agreement, yes. I think you don't learn the skill of polite dissent no and I'm thinking about me and my brothers as well and thinking about the fact that when we did have conflict it wasn't on matters of principle it was purely like dogs in a, <laughs> in, yes. a in a pit having a scrap you know and we were it was all post hoc justification of the fact that I'm right <laughs> um and uh, and I think that that's uh, yeah significantly i wonder whether that affects my own personal sort of approach to these kind of questions in terms of um Money. Now, that's really interesting because we are sort of, uh, we don't talk about it in England. My parents were so much... If you want to know
2: how much money somebody earns, you just listen to how they speak. uh, (laughs) And their accent will tell you everything you want to know. Deborah, when she first came to this country, um, didn't sound, I think she sounded more or less the way she does now. Mm. People say they can hear a little bit of Australian there, but Mm. people trying to kind of size her up and figure out which... Bracket to put her in, we'll always yeah. be a bit thrown by her accent. So then they'd ask her things like, What does your father do? Yes. <laughs> and she'd say, He's retired. Uh, where did you go to school? And then she'd name an Australian school they'd ever heard of. So they didn't have any of these cues yeah. to try and figure out which rung on the social ladder she belonged
1: on. People don't feel rich, I think. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. My father was a state school um, teacher, and it always felt a little bit like we were limping from month end to month end, but he'd inherited a big lump of cash from his dad, and we had a big house. So it was kind of, and and when you're, everything's normal to you when you're growing up. And so uh, I suppose there was always a sense that I wouldn't talk about that, partly out of embarrassment. Uh, we didn't really care about flash cars. Um, there was uh, – that we were never spending lots of money. It was always second-hand clothes. But at the same time, there was always cash for the Wine Society deliveries at Christmas yes. and, you know, orchestral music concerts. So it was in terms of a sort of – it wasn't a – it was probably a kind of a bit of a, a mix-up of, uh, of, of embarrassment and confusion, I suppose, on that particular subject – um, and I think, in retrospect, I almost have a desire to talk about it, possibly because of where I came from, because I wanted to be—I don't want it to be a matter of embarrassment. But of course, it is. Well, in some cases, talking about money at
2: work mm. is essential. You're much less likely to be talking about politics or religion unless you work for mm. uh, one of those institutions. Yeah, you know, if you if you work for the Pope or the Prime Minister, <laughs> then those topics are much more likely to come Fair up. Enough. But everybody could talk about money at work, and I can remember. Uh, When I was much younger than I am now, working for a very entrepreneurial guy, and he had the local ProntoPrint franchise Mm. in Oxford, but wasn't satisfied with that and was looking to diversify. One of the things he was looking to get into was selling stationery. Mm. And he took me along, uh, I think sort of under his wing as his mentee, and we had this meeting with this stationery wholesaler. Mm. And this wholesaler showed us this catalogue, and for each item it was, here's what I pay for them, here's what I'm <laughs> going to sell them to you for, and here's what I recommend you sell them to the public yeah. for. And my jaw hit the floor. Yes, I had no idea it was possible <laughs> to have conversations like this that were so nakedly honest yeah. about the fact
1: everybody's taking a cut. Yeah. I, I suppose the, 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 the whole point of capitalism is that I know how much this is worth to me and you don't, um, and so the margin is in that secret Um, And I wonder if maybe part of my desire to kind of to splurge it all out there is to try and break that down a little bit
2: Well, there's a myth of course that 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 capitalism has as its bedrock Mm. cost plus pricing (laughs) I buy this for x. Mm. I will then sell it to you for x plus 20% and that 20% Mm. is a fine and reasonable amount of profit for me to be making Given that you couldn't secure this item any other way that's not, of course, how capitalism actually works. Capitalism actually works by raising the price until people stop buying. The profit margin being
1: entirely in the gift of yes. the person who has the, the the desired item. And maybe that's one reason why it's impolite, because basically I'm busting other people's comfortable um, and, and anxious secrets um, by bringing it up in polite company. Um, but in work conversations, this is really important because conversations about money
2: will drastically change depending on whether you have a piece of the company or whether you're mm-hmm. an employee. And some people can emotionally have a piece of the company, even if they don't technically. You know, If you're very yes. senior, if you've been with the same organization for a long period of time, you don't have to technically be a shareholder or mm-hmm. a partner to feel like this is your company. But a new recruit... He is much less likely to feel that way, and so
1: conversations about money come from two very different perspectives. Uh, they do. I, I've, I've noticed con- conversation on social media in which people were basically, and that's a place, in fact, where those two groups of people can find common cause with their own people outside their own immediate environment. And people basically been told, "I've been told not to talk about salaries." Which in, in the United States, I'm sure it is in the UK, it, it's illegal to inter- to ask people not to talk about money. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's very important that you do in order to be able to. Evaluate your commitment to you. know Do you feel like you're getting your your fair pay out of the situation? Um, yeah. So, uh, but, but again, maybe a, a little bit of the the issue is that is what you're saying about that that other sense of, of ownership that sort of if you've been with something a long time, it becomes part of you, and it's not just about the money. Um, and that uh, brings us back to religion and politics again. It does indeed. <laughs> if you've been brought up uh,
2: with the same belief system. Mm. then it can be very shocking to hear somebody who comes at it from a different point of view. If there are just things you've always assumed were true about the world Mm. that are actually true of your particular religious denomination Mm. or your particular uh, political perspective, then it can be wrenching to hear somebody blithely making a set of different assumptions.
1: My family was a uh, sort of bohemian Lancashire Roman Catholic. <laughs> and I think my parents, they, they still go to church every Sunday. And there are back to our pockets of my family, which are very, very Catholic indeed. Um, but it's just as soon as I was outside that environment, for me, it just completely went away. And these days I am an atheist and I think everybody else is. But my family are all quite... They're able to accommodate those very different assumptions. And we can talk about this stuff, although we don't ever say, why do you believe that rubbish? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how to do you feel, other. for example, if you yep, were away. Um,
2: at a business lunch mm. and you're the only person who doesn't work for this company or a, some sort of freelancer or consultant? Mm. And the most senior person at the table says,
1: uh, let's bow our heads. And begins to say grace. Right. Um, I would be absolutely delighted and charmed that somebody had opted to do that because it would be so very, very different from most people's everyday experience at work. Now, it may be that it would mortally offend some people. I understand that. Absolutely. But for me, my appetite for variety is... Can actually get me over all kinds of political <laughs> and awkward fences. I, I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because I, I wonder if it makes me innately conservative because I don't want people all to be right because then there'd be no wrong people and there'd be no fun. Um, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and uh, so, in that situation, I think I would enjoy it enormously. I mean, I'm thinking of a, actually, here's an example of, uh, I mean, has it happened to you, incidentally? No, I don't think so. I, but I can't imagine it happening outside a very, uh, well, maybe in America, somewhere in a sort of very I, religious state.
2: Yes. I, I think in America, for example, you're apt to be asked the question... Where do you go to church? Yeah, okay. rather than rather than do you do you yeah. yes? Yeah. It's assumed yeah. that yeah. you <laughs> must go to a church somewhere. <laughs> Are you religious? Are you religious in any way, or yeah. just damned? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so likewise, I can remember when I was a kid, the question was always, "Which football team do you support?" Yes, yeah. because everybody supports a football team, yeah. Yeah. and uh, <laughs> it's if you support the same one as me, then great, and if you support a different one, then I can tease you about it. Yeah. But you obviously support a football team. <laughs> yes. I had no yes. good answer to that question. Yeah. I remember. Even as late as um, the last full-time job I had, Mm. being in one of those dreadful, let's everybody get to know each other by saying something about ourselves circles. Yes. And the question was about football. And I had to say... I've never watched a football match in my life, uh, but I do like watching Mark Williams and Ronnie O'Sullivan playing snooker.
1: (laughs) My theory why football is a popular subject and religion isn't um, is that uh, football is a a means for men to say they care about something without (laughs) being basically accused of being wet in any way. Um, and enables them to to, to you know, jump about and hug each other. Now, the uh, 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 here's an example of an actual business occasion. When I was running a, a session, it was at a business school uh, with a group of people, and what had just happened is that there had been a. Um, uh, a referendum in the Republic of Ireland on the subject of abortion, which had oh, yes. changed the constitution of that republic. Um, and there'd been a sort of a groundswell of opinion, I think, building up that abortion should be legally available to women in Ireland. Um, the legislators had been terrified of reflecting that majority. I mean, mean, there are some areas, for example, um, I think that there is a much lower um, desire for capital punishment in the British legislature than there is in the British population. So I find myself on different sides of what ought to happen, (laughs) depending (laughs) on what my feelings are about the issue. But um, in the the 60s, the the Labour government
2: really led the way Mm. and pushed through an end to capital end to punishment hanging.
1: a long time before the british public was ready well before and and although it looks like um uh, there it looks like a line has just been crossed in which now if you were to have a referendum on the subject bringing it back hanging would not happen if that was the case i actually think that's been true for some time yeah which is which but, i'm saying uh, yeah about. it definitely wasn't yeah. true in the 1960s in and anyway in ireland on the subject of abortion they were the the population were way way ahead of the legislature mm. and partly possibly to do with the place of the church within um uh, our society and Irish listeners, please update me on this because I'm not an expert. Anyway, point is. Um, I was interested in the fact that prior to the referendum, they carried out um a citizens' assembly, um, uh, whereby they'd got together a sort of a massive jury of uh, drawn randomly as a representative cross section of Irish society and gotten together to talk about it and listen to people on both sides of the issue, at the end of which there was some recommendations put forward to uh, to the to the Doyle. Um and um it's uh, uh, and i was really interested in that um and it struck me as a, a maybe it's a kind of a sort of a hot button issue um solution that could be applied in the uk and an irish woman at the table set about straight away um and i because i'd raised this um, as a, um, she started talking about how that the 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 process of jury selection for the citizens assembly was generally thought to have been corrupted and so forth, and I instantly realised, okay, this is a proxy for a conversation about the fact that we are on very very different sides of this issue. So I suddenly found myself in both politics and religion all at once. Um, Thank goodness, there's nothing in the UK which has uh, <laughs> suddenly divided families and forced everybody to pick a side. So, for example, if we were to talk about Brexit, Tom, so we'll bleep that out um, before it gets gets uploaded. Um, You end up with two basically alternative narratives of goodies and baddies. um, And you can decide which narrative you are up for rather than whether you are a goodie or a baddie. Mm. You know, Brexiteers think of themselves as heroes, as do Remainers. Um, um, sometimes you find an issue coming up which seems to be cut and dried. And I think we're in the sort of in the middle one at the moment um, with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Mm, Have you come across situations when you thought what some when you asked yourself, what assumptions can you make when talking to other people about it? No, I mean, I've got to say, to my shame, I didn't really know much about the history of
2: Ukraine Mm. before this conflict took place. But uh, my understanding is that Putin's narrative and the narrative which he was spreading to the rest of the Russian people was that Ukrainians are basically Russians mm. and the Russian invading forces will be welcomed with open arms. People will be gleefully flinging their arms around <laughs> tanks and rocket launchers, eagerly welcoming in those who are going to free them from their oppressors. Mm. And of course, nothing can be further from the truth. Mm. And you only have to look at how long the war has gone on yes. <laughs> in order to see but clearly that is at best an exaggeration yeah. and probably more likely an outright lie. What's interesting for me is how long Putin thinks he can continue to sustain this lie because mm. clearly that's what he's continuing to tell the Russian people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very aware that if I was speaking to a group of Russians, this would be uh, uh, I'd have to think very very carefully in advance, precisely where my my lines would be about yeah. what I'd want to be uh, to talk about.
2: We have done work in mm. Russia. If you were offered a job today, mm. Alex, uh, there's an emergency. Yeah, uh, our speaker's dropped out. Will you come and work with?
1: Our team of Russian consultants, you have to get on a plane this afternoon. <laughs> well, would I just, you go? I, just going back to my, my prior point, I, I think I'd have to think so. If I was actually to do, go to Moscow, I don't think I could do it. And in fact, the last time when, when I did last go to Moscow for work, I remember thinking, I don't know how comfortable I am about going into a country with such a terrible human rights regime. And then there's all these, these questions about global corporations, quite happy to have one foot in a country extracting their, their local currency, which is basically bought at terrible human rights cost, and that's a, a, a it's a question that all international organisations have to tackle. I don't think I would. How about you? Yeah, the same at the moment. Um, that said, I mean, I feel I, I was talking to a client only yesterday who was Russian-born, um, and, and I, I needed to, I wanted to reach out <laughs> in a way, and I ended up saying. Just solidarity to you, because I'm sure you're facing a lot of troubles because it, it was not an occasion. i was I was paid to help this person become better at online presentation, mm. um which is uh, I can't dictate what they use their their new superpowers for. No. that's not that's not how it works. Um, but uh, I did want to acknowledge at least that oh, there's a very large elephant in the room. some political questions, the the noise of you not addressing them becomes deafening. And then I think
2: what can sometimes happen is people overdo Mm. the caution with which they raise the subject. (laughs) They know that it needs to be raised, but they're so anxious about doing it. Mm. And I think, you know, you and I have probably both done this. They make a sort of performance of it. Yes. And I think what you're doing then is advertising in advance this is going to be a difficult conversation. We are both going to be made uncomfortable. Get ready. Yes. Whereas you could actually simply say something like what you said mm. without making a big song and dance about it in advance – and you never know, it
1: might be fine. Yes, we are making assumptions based on particular, almost like kind of tags about the character I'm engaging with, that they are going to have uh, this consequent set of feelings about a particular issue. And that is, I mean, even even if you happen to be right, it's not a good idea to go into meeting people, assuming because you're X, then you must feel Y. Um, uh, and uh, if you're genuinely interested in their position on something, then I don't think it's unreasonable to find a quiet way, um, away from other people, incidentally, yeah. in order to... Uh, protect them from public exposure to ask. But here's another point. These are really exciting subjects. Mm. And the risk is, if we have this, this blanket set of rules without really thinking about why, all of our conversations end up being dull. And I think that they're all, for example, they're all good subjects for comedy because the stakes are really high um, and people are scared, (laughs) so they're likely to giggle. Um, And so people will often recognize, oh, that person is quite exciting company and it's because they seem maybe uh, less frightened of scary territory and so they're able to lead people there safely. Um, Or... Uh, at least they have uh, such a, a grasp of okay. We can find safe ways of talking about this and good jokes to make about this in order to uh, to make it less of a, a test of people and more of an opportunity. Uh, so, um, if you're listening to this and you're wondering how do I find a, a safe way of talking about these subjects, look look for ways of uh, of being light hearted about it in order to bring the jokes in because they also advertise your position in a way which isn't basically you making a political stump speech. Indeed. Any homework for our listeners? Only just if they'd like to get in touch with us with occasions when those topics of religion, politics, and money have come up. Either in social context with people whose position on these issues you don't know, or in workplace situations as well. I, we would love to hear those stories, either it going really well or it going really badly. Um, and Ooh, especially we'll, uh, going really badly. Especially if going really badly. And then we'll take them apart for you next yes. time we meet. Um, if you're interested in uh, getting in touch with us about the work we do with companies, please contact me on alex at the hyphen spontaneity hyphen shop dot com. Or me, Tom at the hyphen And you can also
2: find me on Twitter at Tom Salinsky.
1: Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. It'll help us find new listeners and uh, we look forward to coming back to you uh, next week with new adventures. I'm Alex McLaren and I'm Tom Selinski. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren and Tom Selinski. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Solinski. You Can Talk to Anyone is distributed exclusively by Acast. <laughs>